It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Mance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm here, as always, Austin Peterson, one of your co-hosts, and here with Landon Mance, of course, from Las Vegas, co-host number one today. I'm going to give you the number one spot today. I'll be number two. And uh, we are excited to have Dave Krasny with Red Nest Partners on the on the call with us today or on the podcast with us today. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, before the show began, you you made us feel bad about the fact that it's 12 degrees, you know, where you are <laughs> in New Jersey and Landon's got his feet all toasty warm with his space heater under his desk at 61 frigid degrees in Las Vegas. So <laughs> we we are excited to uh, to have somebody from the East Coast and, and really to talk about what we're going to talk about today. So Red Nest Partners is, uh, is basically a private equity. Um, and we'll let you kind of explain, you know, what it is that you guys do, but you invest in kind of take a, a majority stake in businesses, I believe, and and then uh, kind of help run them for a while and eventually sell. So we're excited for the conversation. But before we jump in, we always ask our guests to tell a little bit about themselves personally. So tell us about your family. Tell us a little bit about your history that brought you to where you are today. And, and then we'll jump in and talk about Red Nest. Sure. I appreciate it. And thanks again for having me, guys. Uh, uh, looking forward to the conversation. So a little bit of background, uh, born and raised in, in Brooklyn, New York. Spent most of uh, my childhood and, and early life in New York City. Uh, was fortunate to be able to spend a little bit of time out in California and then uh, in the Midwest as well, and then back to the East Coast. But as far as family goes, had a very fortunate encounter with uh, with my now wife of almost 10 years at the Cleveland airport, uh, almost 15 years ago where we met. And so she's uh, just been uh, fantastic and you know, uh, really is the brains of the operation for sure. In every respect, she's an accomplished entrepreneur in her own right, uh, founding partner of a, a very successful firm and a recovering lawyer. Uh, but she, you know, her, her success and, and capability really gives me, you know, a lot of confidence in, in you know, taking the entrepreneurial route and, and kind of taking some risk. And so I'm, I'm forever grateful to her for that. Uh, but as far as career goes, uh, started out my career in investment banking in Merrill Lynch in New York, working on mergers and acquisitions for pretty large financial services and then technology firms out in uh, in Silicon Valley had a front row seat for uh, the inflation of the uh, the dot-com bubble in the late 90s, then um, uh, UCLA for, uh, for grad school, and then back to the East Coast where I spent another several years at Merrill Lynch. Uh, followed that up by um, uh, being in an operating role, uh, serving as COO of a, a, a contract publisher in the sports world uh, called Professional Sports Publications. From there, went to a, a pretty large uh, private equity firm that they did also focus on relatively small businesses in the low, what we call the lower end of the middle market. And then from there, cobbled together some capital, bought a business out on the West Coast that I ran for about five years. And uh, coincident with uh, exiting that business, 
partnered up with one of my former colleagues from the private equity firm and, and about four years ago now launched Rednest. And uh, what we do at Rednest is, as you mentioned, uh, Austin, we invest in exclusively small private companies, typically generating anywhere from five to 50 million of revenue um, and have had a history of being uh, cash flow positive and, and profitable businesses. So, you know, that's what we really spend all our time doing now is, is, you know, searching for and identifying those businesses that, you know, are good candidates for investment and acquisition by Redness. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, is there a particular industry that you guys focus on? I mean, five to 50 million, it's funny that you use those numbers. Those are the exact same numbers that Landon and I use. That's, that's where we kind of play in this space and we, we are able to do our best work for business owners. But is there a specific industry or kind of tell us a little bit if you're, if you're open to it, the, you know, the businesses that you're involved in right now? And Sure. Yeah. So we're, we're somewhat generalists as it relates to industry. And, and really, this goes back to our time at the, at the private equity firm. So you know, this was a, a successful firm that had been around for a number of years. Uh, but one of the partners there had an idea that, you know, they were seeing businesses and opportunities that were a little bit smaller than the minimum threshold that they were capable of, of looking at, uh, given their fund's mandate. And so rather than just trying to expand the mandate, you know, they decided to raise a whole new fund and build out a whole new team and really specialize in and focus on businesses of those size. And they come with a, a unique set of circumstances and challenges and, and things of that sort that, that tend to be a little bit different from somewhat larger businesses. And so at that firm, we were somewhat industry agnostic, although there are, you know, there are a handful of industries that, you know, that are pretty highly regulated or somewhat specific that we just don't involve ourselves in and never have like real estate and oil and gas and financial services and things of that sort, really balance sheet financial services. But you know, otherwise, we, we're, we're fairly open and we try to be opportunistic in, in you know, the, uh, the things that we look at. Um, you mentioned you know, what we're involved in today. We, we have an investment in a, a digital marketing uh, services business, which uh, I recalled you talking about with a guest a couple of weeks ago. And you know, it's a really, really interesting space. It's a critical space for small businesses these days. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the lifeblood of many businesses is online. And so it's a place you have to be. That said, it's a, a really challenging uh, and complicated landscape to navigate and one where small business owners, unfortunately, can really be taken advantage of. And so uh, we have an investment in a company called Deliver Media that's based in Florida uh, that we think differentiates itself by really enabling attribution or measurement. Uh, and that, you know, that's kind of sometimes lost in the digital marketing world. It's, uh, it, it's interesting. The, inter the internet was supposed to fix all that, right? You know, there, there's the old Wanamaker axiom, 50% of all my advertising dollars are wasted. I just don't know which half. Yeah. And, and that was a phrase that at the turn of the century from a big department store owner. And it's still somewhat true today. You know, the, the internet was supposed to be able to connect the ends and connect the dots, but uh, it, it's, it really hasn't done that to any great degree. And, and so this company that we invested in really does focus on attribution. And the way they do that is by gathering all of their clients' transactional data and matching that up specifically one-to-one -one with each you know, customer targeted in advertising campaigns. And it's a little bit complex about how they do that exactly. 
but anyway, it's uh, it's an interesting space and one that we're focused on. We're we're looking at another uh, business in that area right now as well. And then at the total opposite end of the spectrum, we have an investment in uh, a um, what's called an MRO, a maintenance repair and overhaul operation for tracked military vehicles. <laughs> so wow. very different than digital marketing. Um, uh, but again, was a, an interesting opportunity of a business that had been around for a very long time, 25, 30 years, uh, with an owner who, you know, needed to sell for a variety of different reasons, but a fantastic management team in place that continued on, uh, and is doing a great job running the business today. We've been invested for, you know, about a year and a half now and, and things are going well in that business. And then we just, you know, we look at a variety of different businesses in, in you know, several different industries. So uh, I think our specialty really is in kind of relating to the entrepreneurs and the size of the business and those commonalities and challenges and issues that folks operating a five, 10 or $20 million revenue business might have and how they may be different from, you know, maybe a hundred or $200 million business. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, so a couple of comments that I'll make to to what you just talked about. So obviously that SEO episode, I may have I may have mentioned this anyhow, but you're absolutely right. Small business owners have a really hard time understanding whether or not their SEO provider really knows what they're doing and is providing any value for what you're paying them for. I mean, mm-hmm. there's several SEO, well, several, there's a bunch of SEO companies out there that'll, their response will be, we're here to build your brand. We're not here to provide necessarily you know, opportunities for you to generate new business, right? So like a a marketing lead type of a deal. So you're right. It's a, it's a tough space there. I, in my estimation, there's a very small percentage of firms that truly know what they're doing and provide a valuable service to small business owners out there. And it's unfortunate because it's critical and, and they can be taken advantage of, like you said. Yeah, no, it, 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 you hit, you hit it right on. I mean, there, there are a couple different aspects to the digital marketing world also. I mean, SEO is one, uh, and SEO is exactly the opposite of, you know, paid search, but both are Google and both are Google yeah. heavy and Google reliant. But one is, you know, firms that claim to have figured out Google's algorithm, which is purposefully secret and opaque. And, you know, there are definitely things that I think the industry has agreed upon that, you know, kind of work to increase your results and all that, th- that sort of thing. Uh, but, th- but in SEO in particular, you know, attribution is impossible to measure. You, you can't possibly connect uh, your customer and your sale with, well, they found you by search simply because of your position on, you know, in, in what the search results were. Whereas with paid search, you know, it's, it's completely opposite. It's, it's totally transparent. You know, it's an auction. You, you, you want to buy the, the spot, you know, on the page that you want to buy. But even there, there's such a, a wide spectrum of how well those services are provided and how well understood the, the bidding process truly is and, uh, you know, sifting through keywords and the different match types and all those sorts of things. So it's, you know, as when when I ran that business on the West Coast that I mentioned for a number of years, many of our leads came from paid search, and so I'm I'm kind of a spreadsheet jockey by training, right? I started my career in investment banking, building valuation models and all that sort of thing, so I know my way around a database and how to analyze it. Uh, but I'll, I got to tell you, I mean, you log into AdWords and you download the data and you try to you know make sense of it and 
it, it can be overwhelming even for a spreadsheet jockey who knows their way around all that stuff. For so yeah. so for many small business owners, it's yeah, and, and not only that, it's so far down the list of priorities. You know, I've got to worry about who's showing up today, and you know who may not uh, be here, and you know, managing people and, and trying to get reliable staff and, and all those sorts of things, you know, it's so far down the, the kind of list of priorities, but yet it is so critical and so challenging that these firms are critical. You, you really need, and, and that's why an industry has sprung up just in the past decade of 5,500 digital marketing firms across the country. But as you say, I mean, it's, it's a lot of art as opposed to science, you know, with many of them and, and, you know, business owners have, you know, very little choice, but to, you know, kind of try one out and then move on to the next and on to the next and on to the next. And, you know, that, that cycle of dissatisfaction is, uh, is really, really frustrating when, when you're sitting in the owner's chair. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, in something like that, I almost feel like the best thing to do is actually avoid SEO for your search and go with a firm that was referred to you by somebody that you knew, right? I mean, a personal relationship that referred you to this group because they've had a good experience with them. Yeah. And even that is challenging. That's certainly a better way to go than just doing a search on the web. uh, Because as you know, the the firms uh, at least claim to know how to game that system and, and kind of get themselves in the spotlight. Uh, but even there, uh, you know, w- without the real ability to measure, and this is something that we look for in in the businesses that we are evaluating and assessing, and and how we value them. You know, the, the, spout another cliche, right? You can't man can't manage what you can't measure. In digital marketing, measurement is hard, and attribution is hard, and um, in many cases, non-existent. And so. You know, it's almost like when when people talk about uh, when, when they refer their friends and family to a doctor. Uh, I love my doctor; he's the greatest, or she's the greatest. And how do you really know? <laughs> I mean, you can assess bedside manner, and are they friendly, and do they listen to your concerns, and all that sort of thing. But when you have to go on to the operating table, is that really the most important criteria on which you're going to judge them? Yeah. Uh, so, so it's just it's. Uh, you know, maybe not the most apt analogy, but but really hard to tell sometimes. And, and even on the recommendations of others, you may think that your, your your firm is doing a good job for you. But if you don't have something to benchmark against and really, really measure the results, it's it's really very hard to tell. No, that's that's fair and, and a very nice way to tell me that you disagree with my assessment. So that's fine. <laughs> but but uh, you're right. But but you're right because where else? How how else? Um, you know, nobody, none of these firms have a proof statement that they can show you. They can demonstrate. Here is the actual ROI, and here's how I calculated that ROI. Here's precisely what you spent, what you paid me, and here is precisely your revenue, or even better yet, your gross margin. Yeah. And again, that, that's kind of one of the things we like about the company we invested in. And they do that through really direct mail more so than digital channels. Um, and, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly how to do that through digital channels. Uh, but the key is, is the, the customer's data. Um, when, you can, when you have access to the customer's transactions and you can kind of map those back to the campaign spend, that's the key to attribution and ROI measurement. And it's really, really hard to do in the digital world. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, one more comment uh, on the MRO side of things, and then I'll toss it over to Landon. I know he's got some questions for you, but on the MRO side of things, I've got two comments. One, I love the fact that it's basically a blue collar type of a of a business. You know, I think all too often entrepreneurs, specifically young entrepreneurs today, believe that tech's the only way to go and and make any money in the world. And there's so many great industrial or, you know, whatever, you know, blue collar type jobs out there or companies that you can build out there that can be very, very successful and extremely profitable. Now I lost my train of thought on the other part, but, um, well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's cool. Oh no, actually what I, what I was going to hit on, which is right up your alley is the fact that we see it. And we actually just met with, with some clients of ours, Landon and I last week, where we're seeing exactly this, where a lot of entrepreneurs, when they build this company, they can get to a certain level, right? It might be 2 million. It might be three. It might be five. It might be 10, but at some point they kind of hit a ceiling, most of them. And they need groups like yours to come in or other outside consultants to come in and kind of help them say, what do we need to do to take it to the next level? Because you've kind of hit your, your spot, right? And the business that we're talking about, it's, it's a blue collar. It's a construction company based in Las Vegas, successful by all measurements. But it's three partners and they are working themselves to the bone. And we're seeing that they are at kind of the end of their level. They need to bring in important members of the management team to take it to the next level. So it's a couple of quick comments that came to mind when you were talking about the MRO side of things. And and just the fact that you're working on military, specifically track military vehicles like tanks is, is awesome. Yeah, it's it's a neat it's a really neat business and and it's essential. I mean, it's you know it goes to kind of preparedness of you know the United States and and our allies and and as you said, it is it's a you know a great group of folks. It's located in upstate New York in uh, Niagara Falls, and the company's been there, like I said, for you know over twenty five years, and and just continues to do a great job and play a really important role. Uh, you know, in preparedness and, and, and service. Um, and so we, as you said, I, I think it's, a, you know, it is an essential business. It, it's important, you know, for the country. And, and we, we've really, you know, been lucky uh, to find ourselves in a circumstance to even, you know, acquire a business like that. And, and you know, in addition, one, one of the things uh, that we didn't really talk about at all is is you know where we source our capital from and and for that particular transaction, you know we partnered with a group called Admiral Capital. The Admiral being uh, David Robinson, the NBA Hall of Famer. Uh, he and his partner have a have an investment firm, uh, and his partner and mine go back uh, you know quite a ways. So it, w- it was a great kind of coming together of of capital with you know David Robinson and that kind of military background and history as well. Um, yeah. and, a, and a fantastic company that, you know, that continues to grow despite being around for 25 years, you know, working on kind of older line uh, track vehicles like armored personnel carriers and tanks, like you mentioned, and things of that sort, you know, but it's a, it's a fantastic business with a great staff and team and, and a great management team up there as well. Yeah, that's that's really cool, and and obviously David Robinson is a legend, so that's that's really cool. That you have that tie in there. So, Landon, if your feet are warm enough to form coherent thoughts, <laughs> why don't you go from here? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Dave, I I 
for the last, uh, I don't know, call it three to five years, um, I have become extremely fascinated by the idea of running and operating a small business like a big business. And, and maybe this, this excitement was kind of ignited by, by reading the E-Myth, uh, E-Myth Revisited uh, by Michael Gerber which uh, I think is uh, arguably one of the best small business books out there. I'm actually reading it for my second time uh, right now. I'm just right in the middle of it. Um, and he, he references uh, Ray Kroc and talks a lot about, you know, um, about McDonald's and refers to McDonald's as the most successful small business in the world, I think is what he, what he calls it. So I, I'm just I'm I'm really fascinated by this, and that's one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on the show because your experience is very unique, which in turn makes you uniquely qualified to be doing what you're doing because you've got you've got the operational experience, you've got the M and A experience, you've got the private equity experience, which is you know essentially you know, expert business builder, buyers and sellers. So you've got all this really cool, unique experience rolled into, into one. And then now you're translating it over to, uh, you know, the small business world. So you call yourself an independent sponsor, which I think in, in this whole M&A business investing world is a newer term, you know, maybe less than 10 years. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that first. Like, what what the heck is an independent sponsor? <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty simply, um, it's kind of a nice way of saying fundless sponsor, which is what groups like ours used to be called. And it's essentially, you know, private investment firm that doesn't have a committed pot of capital. So we don't have, you know, a private equity firm has a commitment from pension funds and university endowments and other big institutional investors that they're going out and investing on behalf of. We're trying to execute some of the same type of strategy as a private equity firm, though we differentiate ourselves in a, in a, on a variety of different uh, uh, levels, and, and we can get into that a little bit. You know, private equity has become uh, something of a dirty word, you know, in recent years, and, and I think deservedly so in many respects. And so, you know, we're trying very hard to stay away from some of the, you know, some of the practices of some of the larger firms and things like that. But, you know, to, to answer your question specifically, uh, the word, the term financial sponsor is just synonymous. It's it's what investment banks refer to as, you know, private equity firms. Independent sponsor just means we're a sponsor that doesn't have a committed fund. So, so, uh, but the independent sponsor universe is pretty varied. Uh, there, are, there are folks like us, like uh, my partner Jack and me, who come out of a, a private equity background and private equity firm. Uh, there are operators who maybe spent 20 plus years in management in a specific type of business or industry, and they go out and look for a business to buy that they want to run, uh, and then they go raise the capital kind of on a on a, a deal by deal basis, just like we do. And then you have groups called search funds, which also kind of bucket into that independent sponsor universe. And the search fund was sort of an advent of both uh, Stanford and Harvard business schools where you had, you know, MBA students who 
rather than going and leaving after they got their MBA to go get a job someplace, decide, well, I'm going to go out and buy a business that I want to run. And, and you know, their kind of well-to-do alumni groups uh, sort of back them in an effort to do that. But uh, a very long-winded answer to your question, Landon, but uh, any independent sponsor, uh, and they're, they're widely varied. So if any, you know, any of the listeners who are small business owners kind of find themselves sitting across the table from an independent sponsor, it's really important to understand what their background is and kind of where they're coming from and how they're approaching things. They also come, you know, just like SEO shops and in all different levels of experience and expertise and in some cases lack thereof. So, uh, so, you know, it's just important to know the individuals or in the, the individuals that you're dealing with. Uh, but anyway, there, there's the, the, the very long definition to independent sponsor. Yeah. Yeah, interesting that you mentioned uh, Harvard and uh, Stanford or whoever else you mentioned, because I'm actually listening to an audio book right now. It's the HBR uh, Guide to Buying a Small Business. Mm. And they are they talk uh, a lot about um, that model that you just described to us. They've got these MBA students that, you know, they teach entrepreneurship to and they kind of guide and mentor them. And then they they go out and they uh, you know, they don't go out to work for a big corporation. They, you know, they're, they're acquisition entrepreneurs and they acquire these small, you know, small businesses. And uh, they talk about the search funds and just the way to different ways to kind of look at, you know, raising capital and getting investors. So on that note, perfect segue, describe to us or, or just help us help us understand better um, as an independent sponsor. So let's say you go out and uh, want to find a digital marketing company to invest in. Walk us through that process. Do you guys, you know, are you looking for individual investors? Are you talking to family offices? Are you guys writing checks out of your own bank accounts? You know, where where does that money come from when you guys make these investments? Great question. All of the above. So we we commit. My partner and I commit to you know writing what for us is a sizable check into every single investment we make. Uh, but we raise the bulk of the capital from a variety of different sources, including many that you mentioned, family offices, chief among, chief among them. Uh, I mentioned Admiral Capital before, which is sort of a consortium of uh, well, they, they have an institutional fund, but they also have kind of a a broad network of of single family offices or ultra high net worth individuals, uh, folks like that. And then there's some institutions as well. You may be familiar with the, uh, the term SBIC fund, which is a small business investment company. And so uh, that's a program run by the U.S. Small Business Association, uh, where they essentially get you know, somewhat subsidized capital to invest in small businesses across the country. And so you know, that's another source of, of capital uh, for us. But and then we maintain, you know, relationships with with lenders and uh, and folks like that as well. So it, it can be pretty varied, um, and there are hundreds of groups out there between family offices, SBIC funds, other private equity funds. Even you know, we we, we may approach them to be a source of capital on a deal, depending on the specific circumstances. And I don't want to gloss over the fact that you mentioned that you and your partner both write sizable checks for each of the investments that you make. That's not for us. The norm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sizable for us. I mean, such that if if it was a loss, it would hurt, which is somewhat different than than you know the fund structure. You know, the fund structure takes a much more 
portfolio approach in many instances where, you know, you're going to have some real big winners and you're going to have a few losers. Uh, for us, if we have even one, you know, real loser, it, it's going to hurt significantly. So, you know, we, we really have skin in the game and put our money where our mouth is. And so we, you know, we try to be really careful and conduct our due diligence and understand who it is that we're getting into business with, because we're often partnering with the entrepreneur uh, or manager of a business. We're rarely, so, you know, search funds are, we want to buy the business and, and run it. So whoever's selling it to us is likely going to be kind of going off into the distance. We don't work that way. We want to partner with the entrepreneur and help them get the business to the next level. So give us an idea actually on, you know, what, what uh, percentage of equity does the seller typically maintain when you guys come in and and do a transaction? It it varies, but um, it can be anywhere from, 15% 15% to as much as 49%, you know, and we're not totally closed off to the idea of making minority investments either. Uh, it's, it's kind of a rarity for us. We're just, we come from the world of control investing and most of our investors expect that we're going to have control, you know, but, you know, we have one right now where it's a perfect example of uh, that we're looking at that, you know, it's a young entrepreneur who has a fantastic business that's growing really nicely. But as you mentioned, Austin, I mean, it's getting to a point where it's becoming unwieldy and unmanageable. His motivation is twofold. Number one, the company's doing great and cash flowing and all that. But when you want to really take those next steps of growth, usually it means hiring a bunch of people. And if you want to hire great people, it means making a pretty sizable investment. And when it's all you and you're going to, you know, take all of your chips, depending on what stage of life you're at and shove them back into the middle, that can be really, you know, that, that can be a big, big bet for somebody to make maybe who's starting a new family and, and, you know, has young children at home or, or something like that. And not only that, not only the financial aspect, but also just the help in building out the infrastructure or back office or reporting and processes. You mentioned Landon, you know, how do you, how do you think about you know, small businesses in the context of a, biz, a big business that's well run. Uh, and there's lots of bureaucracy and minutia and waste in big businesses. Let's not kid ourselves. But there are also some, you know, tried and true things that, you know, big businesses utilize to help themselves be more efficient and run more smoothly. And those are the kinds of things that we try to help, you know, bring to entrepreneurs who are, you know, really drinking from a fire hose. They, find themselves being cheap cook and bottle washer involved in every single aspect of the business. And so, you know, need some help to uh, build out some of those processes, procedures, you know, maybe systems, you know, maybe software, all those kinds of things. And, and that's where, you know, where we try to be helpful when we make an investment. Yeah. It, you know, we, I mean, we even talked to our clients about this. So we, we're typically more involved with our clients on the sales side rather than, you know, acquisition. Not that we haven't done that or couldn't do that. But, you know, we talk to our clients all the time. We'll use the term a second bite at the apple, right? So why not allow them to come in and help you grow this thing, put their money in, put their expertise in, and your second bite at the apple might be just as big as the first bite. When you sold 70 or 80, you still hold 20 or 30, and it's just as big as the first sale transaction. Could be a lot bigger. And we've had experiences in our past lives where the second bite was multiples of the first bite. And, and 
you know, some of that also comes from uh, one thing we had real success at uh, in kind of our prior roles at the firm was adding on and building businesses through acquisition. You know, that's a really foreign language to most entrepreneurs who start a business. And it, it's not uh, it, it's not comfortable. It, it's not something that, you know, would come easily. Uh, but it's a place where we've had a lot of success. And, and as you grow... Uh, and as you gain scale and earnings and, and cash flow and all those things, the market for businesses gets larger. And so the multiples people are willing to pay are higher. And so that second bite, you know, that, that's how you can kind of magnify that second bite by, you know, the, the multiple on the second exit, you know, could be a lot bigger than the multiple that you sold for on, on the first bite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you're taking some of those chips off the table. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure Landon's favorite phrase is to say, move some assets from your business balance sheet to your personal balance sheet, right? And we talk about that all the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm in jest making fun of Landon because he does say that a lot. But it, it's an important concept because we talk about it with our business owners all the time. Yeah. It's, they have to look at their businesses as an investment, right? So maybe it's not the chips, right? Because we don't want them looking at us as, uh, you know, they're they're placing a bet, but they are making an investment and they have to run their businesses like an investment rather than just a job that provides, you know, provides them a job and other people jobs. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, if you want to, you want to make an analogy to, you know, an employee as opposed to an entrepreneur and business owner, think of it as that employee a, they're 100% reliant on their employer for their, their current income, their salary, uh, but then they take their 401k and direct it 100% into their employer's stock. And this was a nightmare story that you heard 20 years ago in the, in the you know, implosion of Enron and WorldCom and places like that, where you, know, you need to diversify a little bit. And, and so you're right. I mean, you, you never know. Something can go wrong in the business. Something can happen to your health where you can't keep the business up at the levels that it had been in, in past years. So I agree with Landon completely. Uh, you know, diversification is important. Moving some chips from the business balance sheet to the personal balance sheet is, uh, is a good lesson, I think. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect uh, segue into uh, my next question for you. So you, you've got perspective from both sides of the table, right? You've been on the, um, you've been on the buyer side. You've been on the seller side. So, um, you know, from, from a buyer's perspective, Dave, what would you say would be the most important um, determinants of value if we're looking at this through the lens of a buyer? You, you guys have touched on this a lot in your past shows, and, and you're exactly right. So I won't be breaking any new ground here. But, you know, the attributes of a business that are attractive to buyers are growth, margins, lack of concentrations, hopefully, whether that's customer concentration or supplier concentration or even, you know, people concentration inside the business. But those are, you know, those are sort of the core fundamental determinants of value. And for us, you know, really people, because we're partnering with folks who are going to be running the business going forward. And so that's the that's really the key, you know, one of the most important, you know, the most important ingredient really uh, that we look for is who are we going to be able to partner with 
where we're going to add some things for sure. Uh, but that they are, you know, they've got a great culture and have built a great business and a great staff and and all those kinds of things that, you know, if we could just take a few things off their plate and help them with some of the infrastructure of the company and help them by, you know, again, diversifying a little and taking a few of those chips off the table. So they're not scared to go make that really expensive next hire into the management of the company you know, those are the sorts of things that, that need to happen to take those next steps and get the company to the next level. Uh, but really, the, you know, the, the core, the fundamental drivers of value, are, I think, are the same across small businesses, mid-sized businesses, you know, publicly traded companies, like growth, not just growth prospects, but, you know, what has growth looked like of late? You know, what kind of margins do you get, meaning, you know, what value do your customers attribute to the product or service that you're selling them that you, you know, that's kind of reflected in whatever margins you're able to realize. And then, you know, the people aspect, I mean, those are kind of the critical things. And, you know, the, the, the concentrations are with smaller businesses, that, that's a place where we're a little bit different. You know, we'll, we understand that there may be some industries or some specific circumstances where, you know, you may have a really big customer that accounts for a big chunk of your business, you know, that there's going to be a little bit of value discount for that. But for some folks and in, in like private equity land, that that's just like a non-starter and concentrations are a, a big no-no. Uh, but for us, the, you know, those are things that we can sort of work around and, you know, make happen uh, if need be. I'll give you a real world example on the uh, partnership side. So, you know, if you're partnering with somebody, you got to go into this business and decide whether or not you want to work alongside them. And they're going to allow you to do the things that you need to do, you know, from a business standpoint. So the real world example of Landon and I partnering, you know, I have to go in with my eyes wide open, understanding that Landon's a guy who just skates by on his good looks. And I had to work my tail off for everything. Right. And I've got to be OK with that if I really want to merge my practice with his. <laughs> yeah no it's it's i mean you you guys i'm sure spend a lot of time together it's like another marriage and you've got to be able to trust your partners and you hopefully want to you know find partners that you enjoy spending time with and you know can, can work well together with and that it's not you know a challenge or a difficult situation or a phone call that you dread having or anything like that and so that you know, that's really important. And and in the businesses that we look at, you know, so, some of those sellers are really just, you know, they're, if they're looking for an exit, they're looking to maximize whatever amount they're going to get in the transaction. And, and that's the end of it. You know, but for ones that are looking to roll equity and, and stay in the business and continue to run it, you know, that, that partnership is, is critically important. And, you know, if, if you've got to spend a lot of time together sort of on the front end before you even get to a closing to see if that's going to work out, uh, as I'm as, as I'm sure you guys did before you signed on the dotted line. Yeah, you. Well, I, I want to be clear. We haven't signed on the dotted line yet. We're like at the <laughs> one yard line. <laughs> yeah, and after this conversation, Dave, I, I think I think we're back Uh-oh. at the ten. Uh oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just waiting for him to shave his head to to make me feel more comfortable. <laughs> Dave, you you uh, you mentioned something. Uh, which I, I just want to uh, draw some attention to just very quickly. You know, you, you said something to the effect of, uh, you know, when you're, 
investing into a small business, you're you're investing into people, you know. And in some, I don't I don't remember if it was one of our past guests or if I read this in one of my books or something, but somebody said, you know, when I'm thinking about buying a business or investing in a business, the first thing I do is have lunch with that that owner, that operator. And if we don't have rapport, I I know I, I I'm I'm gonna go in a different direction, right? Because you know if you if you don't you don't have rapport, if you don't share some of the same values and, and beliefs, you know, I, I think uh, it's hard to over overcome that, right? So I would be curious just in your experience of, you know, buying and selling and investing in businesses, uh, you know, does that, does that ring, ring true to you? I'm just curious. Completely. We, we won't, you know, so COVID has really screwed things up a little bit. We haven't closed the deal during COVID. We haven't, other than, you know, kind of local driving distance op- opportunities, we haven't really you know, traveled and, you know, we were on a plane a couple of few times a month, at least, you know, before that, but yeah, we, we won't, we certainly won't close a deal and yeah, we won't even really pursue a deal until after we, you know, kind of spend real quality time with someone and, and have a meal together. You know, any, anytime we go visit a company, we always schedule, you know, a dinner kind of the night before or, or, you know, the night after. And, you know, try to spend some, you know, social time together, not just talking about business to see, you know, is this a match that's going to, that's going to work out that we're going to be able to work well together? Because if we can't, we're not going to be able to achieve any of the goals that we set out for ourselves when we, you know, when we first close the deal, you know, there, there, you have to have a meeting of the minds on how you're going to go forward. If, if the goals are to continue to grow and build the business and hire more people or, you know, enter new markets and things like that. I mean, you have to be able to, you know, hash all those things out and discuss them at length and be able to come to agreement on them if you're going to, you know, if you're going to execute on any of them effectively. Well, one thing I I just want to make sure we have time to talk about, because I think it's just so valuable for Austin and myself and for our clients and for our listeners. I, I think, Dave, I think small business owners, right? So, you know, five to 50 million space. Um, I think that inherently they know what they need to do to act more like a big business, to grow and to scale their, their companies. I think they know what they need to do, but, but actually doing it and implementing it is a totally different ball game because they're already wearing 14 different hats and they're already doing so much stuff that they're spread so thin that they can't, they can't take anything else on, right? They just, there's just no time to do that. No mental bandwidth to do that. So talk to us about, you know, what are some steps that small businesses can take right now so that they can start to act a little bit more you know, like, like some of these bigger businesses? Yeah. I mean, t- time is the constraint. Um, and you've got to be willing to either hire, whether it's staff or consultants or, 
you know, folks to help you with this. But I, I think the really we hit on it before. It's it's the you can't manage what you can't measure. And most many entrepreneurs that we come across, everything's in their head. They know everything about the business upside down, inside and out. But it's not, you know, it doesn't live in any sort of reporting or or anything like that. I mean, so, so to answer your question, Landa, I, re- I really think that the best thing that folks can do, and, and you got to find the time to do it. I mean, uh, you know, reporting at the most basic level, financial reporting, like keeping good financial statements. I, I know it sounds very basic, but, you know, many entrepreneurs are just like, yeah, the accountant handles that at the end of the year and, you know, puts together the tax return and, and whatever. You know, the financial statements tell the story of how the business is doing, uh, or, or at least it should. And so it, at the highest level, you know, if you could just keep solid financial statements, you know, that's kind of a first step. You know, if you wanted to even get beyond that a little bit, you know, pulling out of the entrepreneur's head some of those things that they know in, innately, whether the business, how the business is performing, like there, there are certain you know, call them statistics or metrics or whatever you want to call them. There are certain things that the entrepreneur knows uh, inherently, uh, but they're not, you know, there's no kind of, you know, dashboard or report or or anything like that. And and that would be sort of the second thing that I would say is that, you know, when you get together, when, when a board of a company gets together or the operating management team of a company gets together, there should be a set of things about the business you know, that you measure periodically to see what's going on. And so you can diagnose problems or you can take uh, preventative action against a problem that looks like it's building based on some of these, you know, things that, that you're seeing in the business. And that's the biggest thing that you're exactly right, Landon. And people just, you know, they're doing 25 different things and they don't have the time to do it. But if you can put some of those things in place, such that they're on, I mean, there's all kinds of software and everything else nowadays to help people with this sort of thing. But that's a biggest, you know, one of the biggest challenges we have when we go to look at a business is, you know, we need to assess and evaluate how it's performing. If all we have to rely on is, you know, what one individual is telling us as opposed to, you know, some history of, oh, you know, the, these three stats or these three metrics are the real drivers of the business. And this is what we kind of look at and live by. And we can look at them kind of going back in time over the past year, two years, whatever, so that we can determine, okay, you know, they're making improvements in this, that, or the other thing. I mean, that's really one of the, the biggest differences between big businesses and small businesses. Small businesses, everything's in the individual's head. Uh, bigger businesses, it's, you know, there's reports and, and statistics that are tracked and processes in place and all those sorts of things. And if you can, hire a consultant or carve out the time to implement those things and then just kind of have them be part of the, you know, weekly or monthly, you know, process that you go through as an owner, it goes a long way to building value uh, in, in a business. Yeah, agreed. It actually, what you're talking about actually reminds me of a, of a past guest that we had on the show. His name is Chris Ronzio. He owns and operates a company called Trainual. And it's set up for small businesses to be able to put together an operational manual and really just step-by-step everything that needs to be done inside of the business. Because it's not by accident that franchises have a higher success rate than 
other types of small businesses. And it's because they have a full manual that tells you step-by-step how to run that business. Yeah. And he, he makes it easy with the software, like you mentioned, that helps them put together their steps, their operational manual of what to do, what to measure, and then obviously helps you to measure those things and be able to provide them to a would-be buyer or just to be able to look at and see how your business is running day to day. And, and even when you bring in new people, I mean, when, when I was running the business out in, uh, in the Bay Area, we, you know, tools like this are great, you know, whether it was Zoom or GoToMeeting or whatever, we would record video tutorials for every role in the company, you know, rather than sitting and kind of typing out a long manual for somebody to read, you know, you could record, you know, what, what's going on on the screen with whatever software you're using and kind of record your voiceover. I mean, yes, it's a pain to do and do well, but it's, it's, it's worth whatever investment of time you have to carve out in order to get that done. Because, you, you know, even, you know, if you lose an employee, I mean, that, that's often in small businesses, the, the hardest part of a business is attracting and keeping, you know, good people. You lose a person and now all of a sudden you're starting from scratch and you got to train them up all over again and, and all that sort of thing. So if you have these kind of processes and procedures and, you know, whether it be manuals or videos or anything else in place, you know, it can, it can really help. And it also, like you said, when it is time to go and sell the business, demonstrate, you know, to somebody who's just trying to learn the business for the first time, you know, look, I have, you know, everything here is documented. And, um, you know, if I got hit by the proverbial bus tomorrow, the business could go on. Yeah, absolutely. Unless you've got something, Landon, I wanted to ask, you know, one of the things that you've mentioned to us in the past, it may have been in the in the initial call that we had, you know, a qualifier call, but, you know, one of the things that you talk about is that bigger is not always better, right? Or maybe not even good. So give us your philosophy on that. Yeah, that, that's really, you know, we all look to models and, you know, what we consider to be successful. And if you're a, a business owner or an operator or an entrepreneur today, it's hard not to look to big companies, you know, maybe publicly traded companies or, you know, private equity backed companies as, as a model of, of, you know, how to do things or what to do. But things have gotten pretty crazy uh, of late. And so there, there are just so many things that are going on, you know, in the big company world and universe that. I just would not advise any any of the kind of people who live in our world to, to look at as examples. You know, if you're going to start a business and your business plan was that you're going to not make a penny of profit for the first 10 years, you know, that that's probably not going to work out so well for <laughs> most of us. You know, but we look in the public markets today and, you know, a, a lot of what's come out uh, of Silicon Valley and elsewhere you know, companies, well, five years, 10 years, maybe 15 years, and they're still burning, you know, huge, huge amounts of dollars. And, and it, it doesn't work, first of all, in, in our segment of the market, we can't do it because we don't have endless capital to burn. And we don't, you know, we can't lever up our business, you know, five times free cash or seven times free cash or anything like that. Because, you know, when we go to the bank to get a, an SBA loan, they make us personally guarantee it. You know, we don't have, uh, you know, banks or Wall Street lining up to, you know, lend us more money than we could possibly ever spend. You know, so that's one, you know, big different aspect between, uh, you know, big and small. But, 
it just it's it's really it's getting harder and harder to look for examples of you know how to act and how to behave and and how to run your business if you want to kind of look to the big boys as to as to how to do that um and, and you know most people know this it's it's very obvious you're not going to you know so far overexpend yourself that you'll kind of never get back from there um but I just it you know have to mention it because it, you you see it in in so many instances right now and there's just so much froth and so much mania in you know the stock market and and other places and so I think it's worth mentioning there's nothing wrong with having a sort of reliable sound business that you don't have to you know swing for the fences you know with with other people's money the 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 way all these other folks do because you know, for us in the small business universe, the the consequences for that are are you know much more significant than they are in kind of the public market world and other places where they just walk away. They they don't really have all that much skin in the game, or you know their credit rating at risk or anything like that. So you know just just to you know kind of be careful and and not you know not get too far over your skis. You know chasing something that you see that may or may not be uh, sustainable in the long run. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think we've talked about this on some past episodes where everybody just wants to get out there and raise capital right from the get-go on any of these new businesses that they're trying to start. And I think there's nothing wrong with bootstrapping a business and building slow, taking on some debt, you know, those sorts of things that we all have to do as entrepreneurs at some point to, to get to that next level. But you don't have to start by raising capital and trying to, you know, kind of swing for the fences, so to so to speak. The stories don't. The stories you see of folks who are able to do that, they they don't relate, you know, to to all of us in in the small business world. Like I said, you can't. We're not gonna we're not gonna follow the model of we're gonna throw so much capital at this that. We're going to put everybody else out of business so that when they're when they are all out of business, we can turn the dials and you know charge what, whatever we want. Like yeah. that, that just doesn't that doesn't work in the real world. Like you know, leave that for Uber, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'll make a quick comment, Dave. I think I've mentioned mentioned this on a past show before, but it's funny that you say that because that actually is is an a, a big ongoing debate in in Austin and I's you know, world of, of wealth management, you know, there's this big debate about, you know, you've got the solo practitioner, maybe with one or two staff people, you know, that's doing, you know, five or $600,000 of revenue. That's, you know, taking home three or 400 grand of gross income, you know, cause the margins are so, you know, typically really good in our, our business versus, you know, the guy or the gal that's running a, billion or $2 billion RIA that's got 10 advisors and 40 staff people, their gross income is the same as this solo practitioner, you know? So there's this big ongoing debate about, about, uh, about that. So it's interesting that you mentioned that, but also that as I kind of started educating myself around uh, this topic, it really changed my perspective a lot. Because if you would have asked me five or six years ago, you know, what, what was my end goal, you know, with my practice, you know, I may have said that, uh, you know, I wanted to have this staff of 
you know, of 20 and, you know, maybe 500 million of, you know, assets under management, et cetera, et cetera. But, but really this, this ongoing debate and what you just mentioned, it's really changed my perspective a lot just to kind of uh, be a lot more intentional, you know, with, with the growth of my own practice. So it's uh, interesting that you say that, but Dave, we are, we are out of time, my friend. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I have no doubt that our our listeners will get uh, a lot of value from uh, some of the stuff that you shared with us. But before we wrap up, for people that want to track you down and uh, you know connect with you and have a conversation, uh, how do people find you? Yeah, our, our website is rednestpartners.com and uh, can certainly you know email through there. I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn. But uh, yeah, really appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much for uh, for the forum here and the conversation and look forward to future episodes. Appreciate yeah. it, Dave. Yeah, we, lot, we appreciate Dave. the partnership and look forward to uh, spending some time with you in the future as well. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.